for the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Colin Marshall coming to you from LARB HQ in Silver Lake, Los Angeles, California, sitting down with Nathaniel Rich, author of three books, San Francisco Noir, The Mayor's Tongue, his first novel, and his second novel, brand new, Odds Against Tomorrow. Nathaniel, when did you first start thinking about, how to put it, the, the utility of fear, how fear is useful? Well, I started writing the novel in 2007, and I wanted to write about obsession, and, and I feel like the obsession uh, of our time, uh, of our culture, is, is fear. And you, know, you can't go an hour uh, without being reminded of some horrible thing that is coming for us, whether it's antibiotic-resistant superflus, um, war, uh, nuclear exchanges between the Koreas or... Uh, Iran and Israel, um, terrorist, random acts of terrorism. You know, that's just in the last week as we record this. Um, so I wanted to write about these things and I wanted to write about it in a relatable way through a story and through a character who's able to, um, experience the sort of wide range of emotions and sort of, um, intellectual responses to to living in a in a world of, of constant anxiety, mm. um, which is a world I'm personally <laughs> probably familiar with, and you know, I mean, I, I tend towards neuroses probably in in some ways more than other other people, and this allowed me to really get down to the bottom of what should we be afraid of, mm. but also uh, you know what's real, what's what's pretend, and also what is what is all this fear doing to us? How is it shaping us? And so I had these general ideas about. Uh, these ideas I wanted to write about, and I had a ca- started with a character, and it grew out of that. Mm. And this character, he is fixated on ingesting and internalizing more and more and more disaster data, first personally, then professionally. And I was going to ask, you know, what what is your experience being fascinated by the possibility of disaster? Everybody has been that, I would say. To what degree have you been that? Well, when I was writing this novel, I absolutely obsessed. I mean, I went well, out. You had of, to to write the novel, right? I had to. I had to, and I and I've you know, I think like a lot of people, I've gone through these sort of internet wormholes of, uh, you know, going to the, uh, for instance, the USGS website where they plot the 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 readings um, in Yellowstone, the Yellowstone supervolcano. Right? There's this huge supervolcano. I didn't know about this until I started researching the book. Um, that has gone off twice in the history of the planet that we know. Um, and both times it's essentially destroyed all living things. Mm-hmm. And the last time, the first time it happened was 2.1 million years ago. It happened again um, about a million years ago. And we're roughly speaking, we're due. Mm-hmm. You know, so I wanted to figure out, well, what, what are the odds that this can actually happen? And you can go now on this website and, and watch the, the, the um, USGS monitor every little ripple in the ground and people comment on, you know, is this uh, is this the one? You know, is this is this the one where, where that ends all life on Earth? You know, and so um, I had moments of obsession, and I also went out of my way to write um, to take on nonfiction assignments during during the five years that I was work, working on the novel. That allowed me both to do research for the novel, but also to um, do a different type of research and spending time with people who are obsessed with. Um, terrifying things. So mm-hmm. I did a piece, for instance, for Harper's about uh, people who are convinced that cell phones cause brain cancer. And in 15 years, we're going to be facing the greatest human health epidemic uh, emergency ever, uh, bla- uh, brain cancer plague. And so 
So I, I was looking for ways to, you know, both write about the actual facts of the matter and go deep into the into the facts, into the numbers, mm-hmm. but using that more as a platform to get into these larger, more amorphous um, fears and and themes about, um, you know, what is this these what are these fears doing to us, and how do we deal with them, and you know, do we ignore them, um, do we become cynical? Do we become activists, uh, anti-electromagnetic field activists, for instance? Uh, I get their emails every day. Um, and I'm still on other lists. And, or, or, or is there some other way out? And, and so that's, that's what I wanted to really get to the bottom of. What, to your mind, is the difference between fear and worry? Well, I guess it's a question of degree, uh, fear and worry. And, you know, and then there's, there's just sort of free-floating anxiety, which I think is is in some ways the modern condition and i think it's you know i was asked this question recently and and someone mentioned 911 and i think for i think a lot of people our generation who you know experienced you know bad things before 911 but didn't feel implicated in the same way or 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 assaulted in the same way and that that um just a total chaos out of nowhere could arrive and change the world as as we knew it um, that happened hadn't happened for people born in the eighties, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I think since then, I think I can trace back a lot of my own kind of worries <laughs> to that period in a kind of loose way. You know, I, I was never afraid of flying. Mm-hmm. And after that, though, it wasn't, I didn't connect it directly with nine 11. I started to become a little anxious about well, what the hell is happening. We're in the middle of the air. Mm-hmm. How is this magical thing working? <laughs> it seems like I'm violating some rule of nature, you know, little things like that. Uh, started to become kind of secondhand, and and I don't know if that's a common experience or not. But I, I, you know, I felt looking back um, when I started writing the book, you know, ten years later, I guess, or eight years after nine eleven, I started to wonder: does it derive from that in some way? Has this sort of changed the the climate? And I think it has to some degree, and also um, just this sort of steady uh, looming. Uh, concern about climate change and all of this, if it's many manifestations uh, that it might have for us in the future that we'll have to live with um, is kind of a looming worst case scenario that is always percolating. Mm. This this novel, Odds Against Tomorrow, is a disaster story, not like a disaster story I've read before, though. I mean, you open with a disaster, the destruction of Seattle in an earthquake, which I guess is one of these inevitabilities. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there were two disasters that I wrote about that because that I included in the book. I mean, it starts with Seattle and then there's a hurricane hitting New York. And I chose both of them because they're both extremely, um, if not likely to happen very soon, um, they are very, it's very plausible that they would. So Seattle um, is on this enormous fault line, mm-hmm. biggest fault line in North America. And the last time there was a mega earthquake there, uh, it was about 300 years ago. They've 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 recurred at about a rate of every 300 years. Mm-hmm. And the last time you know an earthquake uh, hit there, it was felt in in Japan. Um, and people who live in Seattle, you know, scientists there, they know that one is going to come. And so yeah, it's inevitable. It's a matter of time whether it happens uh, tomorrow or 50 years from now or 100 years from now. That you can't really predict. Um, but yeah, a, hur- a massive, a, a large hurricane hitting New York is the same way. Uh, also an inev- inevitability. It's happened before in the eight- 19th century. There was a storm that caused the East River and the Hudson River to meet um, at about Soho. Mm. And so 
that actually, you know, a big storm actually did hit New York right before uh, the novel was done being edited, um, which is a whole another story. But but yeah, these are these are things that you know most of the, most of the scenarios in the books are inevitabilities. It's mm. it's just a question of time. How central to the story is the question of? Well, the fact that nobody seems to be able to agree how likely something has to get before you start preparing. Yeah, well, there's there's some question of you know we have to. Pri- <laughs> I mean, Mitchell has to prioritize. Well, what right. what's the main character in your book? Yeah, Mitchell Zucker is the main character. Is Math Genius who works at uh, Future World, this mysterious consulting firm in Manhattan, uh, where his job is to predict worst case scenarios uh, in a kind of uh, developed a kind of market in high catastrophe. Uh, sells sells his uh, wisdom about worst case scenarios to his corporate clients, and he becomes obsessed. and And yeah, so part of what the job is is to actually figure out in very detailed way what is likely to happen and when. Mm. And um, yeah, and some things I learned are not very likely to happen, like an asteroid hitting the planet. I think right. we're safe with that. Uh, that's not going to happen in a really long time, and by the time it does, we'll have, be able to deflect it. You know, have some shield. But there are other things that are more likely uh, to happen. But, um, you know, in a certain sense, you could say, I mean, the answer to your question could be, well, we don't really need to worry about any of this because it's all out of our control. And if something happens, we can't stop it. And and that's fate. And I think that's something else I wanted to write about is the convenience of obsessing over worst case scenarios um, as, a, as a kind of emotional procrastination and a way to a way to avoid dealing with things that you do have control over in your life. So it's a lot easier to go on the USGS website, you know, and uh, obsess over the, um, the readings of the, the ground in Yellowstone instead of, um, worry about, you know, maybe fixing your relationship with your parents or or your girlfriend uh, or calling that friend that you've fallen out of touch with, but you've heard something's happened to them and you want, you know, those types of little intimate uh, personal crises um, are, you know, tend to have, are, are actually higher stakes in one's life. Mm-hmm. But um, worrying about things like a nuclear Iran um, or sea level rise, I think can be a convenient way out. And, and so I wanted to write about the tension between the, the sort of public uh, crises and private, intense, emotional, personal crises. It's it's one of the central ironies of the book, is it not, that Mitchell, your protagonist, he opiates his anxieties about disaster by computing the odds of disaster. I mean, would you say that? Yeah, I think that's well put. Um, I like that verb, opiate. <laughs> um Yeah, he basically, his his method is to console himself by doing the math, finding out the odds, and... And almost in every case, the odds are so um, low that something bad will happen that he kind of uh, he's able to feel better mm-hmm. about himself. But it's it's a vicious cycle because the more information he learns, the more obsessed he gets, and as he cures himself of one anxiety, you know, when he's not might not be worried about asteroids anymore, he finds out about some new type of um, antibiotic resistant super flu that's that's <laughs> <laughs> migrating from India, uh, you know, west, mm. and so it's it's not a sustainable uh, way of life. Mm. It's a vivid image in the book. He he computes the odds of these things happening, and you know, you you compute the odds of a super flu that does something like that, and it's point zero 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 zero, and all the zeros Mitchell sees as like pills that are taking away his anxiety, right? I mean, for you, reading about these disasters, 
in the book research or not, how many zeros did it take <laughs> to, to pill away that anxiety? How many opiate pills did you need? Well, to, I mean, to be honest, I don't get too worked up about, I, I never got to a Mitchell level panic about any of these things, really. I mean, I was, I was quite disturbed to hear about the super volcano, quite disturbed to learn about <laughs> this antibiotic resistant flus and all of that. But, um, I think there's something really fun also about, about disaster, about mm-hmm. catastrophe and, 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 uh, chaos. And there's something almost liberating about it because once, once you know that anything can happen and that we're doomed in so many different ways, it, it's, it has a focusing effect, right? Mm-hmm. It forces you to actually, um, worry about things that you can control. And, mm-hmm. and I think it's, you know, I think that's how Mitchell experiences it in the novel too. It, it, it becomes a kind of noise that ultimately I think to, um, mature, you know, the process that he goes through, the evolution that, that he undergoes in the course, over the course of the novel, um, is he, he moves on from that place and, and yeah, there are pills cause he's an addict, you know, he's addicted mm-hmm. to fear. And I feel like that's where, that's where we're at culturally. But I think in order to, to live your life in a, in a sane way, you have to be able to move beyond that. I remember when we were probably teenagers, there was just this wave of disaster movies about volcanoes and earthquakes and all kinds of nonsense. Hollywood envisioning various cities to start. If it wasn't New York, as, as happens in Mitchell's New York, it was Los Angeles where we sit now. What is it? I mean, since it's in your book, I mean, why, why do we not relish, but what fascinates us so fascinates us so much about seeing New York destroyed? Well, I think New York certainly has a, a, a great symbolic power. And there's a whole history of films and literature about the destruction of New York. In fact, there's a great book by a scholar named Max Page um, about this. That's sort of a cultural history of of uh, writers and filmmakers destroying New York, you know? Um, and, and I think part of it is, you know, dis- disaster films in general, they allow you to they're cathartic, right? They allow you um, to kind of exercise your greatest fears, see them played out um, in glorious ways, right? Like independent, yeah, Independence Day, Dante's Peak, yeah, all of that stuff. Um, <laughs> deep impact. Uh, you know, they, they allow you to sort of confront some of these fears and then also feel a sense of relief that, you know, few things aren't that bad yet. Um, but those films are filled with so many cliches and, and, and they're so extreme. And yeah, you, you always have that moment where it's like, Beijing, what ha- Beijing's gone. You know, <laughs> Beijing's off the board. London, London's gone. We've lost London. You know, <laughs> um, L.A. So it's gone. And uh, and that that kind of simplistic sort of broad brush approach is really fun. Mm. I think at, at at a movie, but I think ultimately to get a little more deeply into these issues and to to understand more what's going on intellectually, what's going on emotionally you have to push past that. So at, at every turn in the novel where there was any uh, threat of it veering into Hollywood disaster yes. uh, motion picture um, situation, I, I very consciously went the other direction. Mm-hmm. So you don't see big explosions. You don't see, with maybe one exception, you know, landmarks mm-hmm. uh, underwater, um, the kinds of things you might see in like a deep impact. I was very purposefully trying to to, to thwart any expectations of that kind of uh, Hollywood thrill ride uh, disaster pick idea, because it's, it's ultimately, I think a superficial treatment of, of, mm-hmm. of a lot of, of these, these major themes that I think we do have to grapple with in a more serious way. How did you figure out which disaster to use? 
on New York to inflict upon New York. I mean, you use a, a one that is, I, I guess, actually possible, uh, data-based, evidence-based, but how, why that one? Why, why the flooding? Um, two reasons. I, I knew that, yeah, so Mitchell becomes obsessed with worst-case scenarios, and I, and I wanted him to reach a point where he's basically having a breakdown, mm. which happens, and then, then finally he's confronted with an actual worst-case scenario. And so, so really I chose the one that was the most likely, which is a hurricane hitting New York. Um, it happens a lot. Uh, in and as you said, during editing, happened. Yeah, during, it almost happened the year before that. Um, I didn't expect it to happen on the scale of Sandy um, when I was writing the novel, you know, before it was published, but I knew it was a possibility. I mean, I had five or six hurricane seasons as I was writing the novel to uh, endure, wondering, you know, is this the year I'm going to have to throw out my novel because it is a catastrophe actually does happen. So yeah. is Sandy technically a, was it a worse, hur- worse hur- hurricane than happened in the novel? No. Sandy's a one mm-hmm. category one. Tammy in the novel is a category three, oh, okay. but it goes up to five. You know, I also, that's part of what we were talking about earlier. You know, I, I made a, a conscious decision not to have it be a five because mm-hmm. that's although totally possible and will happen in some, some point in the mm-hmm. future. Um, that would move it into more apocalyptic territory, and I, and a three is actually quite pl- you know plausible. Their threes hit hit different parts of America um, many times uh, at quite quite a high frequency, right? So, um, yeah, but a, a storm hitting is uh, is very likely, and I'd studied previous cases where it had happened. And there were these fan- fantastic government reports uh, that are accessible. If you just go to the library, there's a great Army Corps of Engineer, Engineers uh, report from the mid-90s that uh, lays out what would happen in, two, in a Category 4. Mm-hmm. And so I relied on that pretty heavily, toned it down slightly um, for, for the Category 3. And, and, uh, and when Sandy hit, I didn't really have to, as it turned out, I didn't have to change anything because those predictions um, were accurate. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, yeah, so it all derived out of research and, um, and the facts as we, as we know it. And I thought, you know, I didn't want to do, I didn't want to go into terrorism, which has a whole other set of issues involved. I didn't want it to be political, you know, overtly political in that way. Um, and I didn't, and I wanted something that was, uh, specific to New York. So a natural disaster of some kind. Yeah. Now, you have logged many a year in New York yourself, but you live in, in New Orleans now, a city that is not a stranger to disaster. And tell me how much the Katrina is still in the consciousness of that place. Yeah, quite, it is quite profoundly. Um, it's part of your daily life there. And, you know, I was in New York when Katrina hit. Um, and, I, you know, I read about it like everybody else. I was disturbed by the images that, that you know, we were shown and... Um, and I was, you know, aware of the basic facts, right. But, but moving there and seeing, you know, five or six, now seven years after the storm, the way that it persists, the way the trauma of the storm persists Mm -hmm. and the way that the, you know, the landscape was, was transformed, um, physically, uh, you see it every day there and you see, you know, there are whole parts of the, of the city that are basically in ruin, still in ruins, or are totally overgrown with forest, um, and you still see the the you know the marks on the houses where they count the number of, of bodies found, and and people are traumatized about it still, and and you know a lot of people didn't return, and it affects. It's part of the conversation. It's it's part of, you know, it's like in the air, it's in the water, and so 
living there, you know, and then I, I wrote a piece about the Lower Ninth Ward, uh, the, the reconfiguration of the of the landscape there, you know, after the storm and what had happened in the six years that followed, and speaking with people in that neighborhood specifically, um, it. It, it it definitely it forced me to reevaluate some of the final sections of the novel and and so I did rewrite um, the end of the novel uh, in part based on my the experiences that I had to reflect um, what I what I'd learned living in New Orleans. Tell me that that said, what is the appeal for a New Yorker such as yourself for post Katrina New Orleans as, as a place of, as a place to live? Well, it's a fascinating. It's I mean. You know, I don't have to tell you it's a fascinating place. It has an extremely rich culture. It's a cent full of eccentrics, which I like. Um, it's it's a place that's so far. Ex- New York has all these things too. I want to hear the difference. <laughs> it's well, it, it has a lot of similarities in in a way. I mean, it's a port city. People talk. So the the New Orleans accent is kind of like a Brooklyn accent. I think there's some port. Dialect there that crosses over. There's a self-referential quality that you see in New York too, in a slightly different way. Um, in that, I think in New York you feel like whatever you're doing has global importance. <laughs> There's that that kind of level of the New York snobbiness, right? And in New, or- New Orleans, you feel like it has it's sort of the same thing. Whatever's going on has global importance, but the whole globe is it is New Orleans. There's no, no one sort of sees outside of New Orleans. No one has any ambitions to like, you know, if I make it big here, I'm going to go to New York. No one cares about anything outside of the city. And that has, that's responsible for, you know, some bad things. And I mean, I think there are certain lessons that it can learn about good government, for instance, and, um, and so infrastructure um, from other cities, but it also, so there's a slight, you know, can create a, a closed-mindedness in some ways, but it also is responsible for all the great, the glories of the city, and it's it's the the strength of the culture, um, its iconoclasm, uh, and it as this sort of wonderful melting pot um, that makes it such an exciting, uh, you know, unique place to live. And and now it's having this this interesting moment where, in the last couple of years, a lot of people have been moving in, a lot of New Yorkers. Um, I've noticed since I've gotten there uh, about three years ago, uh, even, and, and there's, you know, in many ways it's helping the city In other ways, I think people look askance at, 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 you know, transplants. Mm. Um, so it's going through an interesting period, but it's an exciting place. It's a cheap place. You can be young and, you know, young, it's a great place for young artists, young writers, um, to work. And so it it has a really, it has a bohemian quality that New York doesn't have anymore. Mm. Um, I mean, it, it made me realize, you know, it's like going to a dive bar in New Orleans mm. makes you realize that dive bars in New York are really simulacra of dive bars. <laughs> they're like prettified, you know, they're oh, faux, dive. faux dive bars. Yeah. You realize like, oh yeah. in a real dive bar, yeah, there are holes in the ceiling. Um, there's like, you know, mm. pools of urine in the bathroom. Yeah. Beers you actually kind of don't want to be there. Yeah. It's kind of uncomfortable, but beers are a dollar or $2 and, um, people are smoking and it's, you know, and, and it's, it's a, there's, there's this kind of authentic thing there that is increasingly vanished from New York or harder to find in New York, or you have to go further and further away from Manhattan to find it. I remember reading an article from you in the New York times, I I believe, which was about the whole gentrification of Manhattan, then the gentrification of Brooklyn. And this is people, you wrote, you you write about the people you're not necessarily among them who see that as a kind of its own destruction. Like this might as well be a flood to some people, right? 
It's talking about New York specifically, or yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, I think growing, I grew up in New York, and so it's it's definitely it's a strange feeling to go back to my really crappy neighborhood in Midtown where I grew up mm. and see it become transformed into this yuppie paradise of of, of hip bars and and clubs and. Um, you know, the sushi restaurant where nobody went to for 15 years. Now there's a line down the block. It's the same, you know, same disgusting restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's something, I'm a, I'm a very nostalgic, sentimental person. And so I feel um, that something's lost in that way. But it's part of New York. That's the history of New York is it's constantly devouring itself and, and becoming something different and you can't you can't fight that if it wasn't always changing you wouldn't want to be there necessarily right yeah absolutely i mean there's there are negative things about it there there are you know it used to be that you could be you could be an artist and and poor and live in new york and you can't anymore um so i think it it can deaden the culture in in ways and and you know uh, alternatively like in in new orleans you can now you can have a beautiful old historic place uh, and pay very little rent and live cheaply and eat well and, and, um, drink all night, you know, do whatever you want to do. And so it's, it's become very attractive for many, many people, but it also, there's a danger in that everybody coming, flooding the city. I mean, that's not the best verb. Everybody, um, you know, moving all these transplants moving to the city, then, then of course have an effect on the city itself and maybe ruin the things that attracted them to it. So this it's a constant, uh, shifting dynamic, but um, yeah, I love being in New Orleans. It's a fascinating place to be, and um, it's. I think it's been it's it's been a really good place to work. I mentioned you've also been an observer of San Francisco, and you 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 talk about that quality of New Orleans, where the world only extends to the city's borders. That kind of happens in San Francisco as well, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I knew after college that I, I wanted to live in the two American cities I wanted to live in were San Francisco and New Orleans. Mm. And San Francisco has a lot of similarities in, in these ways, I think, mm. with uh, New Orleans. It's very self-referential, and uh, it, it, it is its own culture. That's mm. unmistakably San Francisco. You know, But I, I wonder if that's starting to change with what's going on in, in the tech industry now. Um, there, it used to be that... Like, if you ask Rebecca Solnit, she will tell you. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, I mean, it used to be... It's funny, and she's now doing a book about New Orleans um, uh, anthology. Uh, yeah, and so it's, it, it used to be when I lived there, and then I, I would go to New York. When I when I lived there and moved back to New York, or visited New York, every block would be different mm. in New York. A year later, you know, half a year later since I was there last, and I would come back to San Francisco, and nothing would be changed. And then years later, when uh, I moved back to New York and would return to San Francisco, I would literally go down the same streets, run into the same people, nothing would have changed. Um, and there's something really reassuring and nice about that, but that's now changing with the text, the tech stuff. It's, it's so crazily expensive. Um, and it's now having a kind of the, the New York thing where blocks are different every time you return. That's been happening now for a few years. And I wonder, um, how far that's going to go. I can't think of any movies or books that destroy san francisco do you know of any i feel like that city never gets destroyed in in fiction it it's spared usually yeah there's a um there's a good sci-fi movie from the 50s um what is it like the thing from the sea the king thing that came from the sea i think that san francisco is sort of a nuclear uh uh like screw like some kind of giant octopus comes and, and destroys the city um 
And there are earthquake movies. I think a city, uh, the film called San Francisco, a very old movie from the 30s, I think is about the 1906 earthquake, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there, you know, there aren't as many examples. I mean, I think um, New York is a very easy target for, for disaster films because mm-hmm. of its symbolic power. And you don't get the same, I think, catharsis just destroying San Francisco, which, <laughs> you know, gets destroyed all the time by earthquakes anyway, or... You know, L.A. is is sort of comes in second, uh, I think, uh, for destruction. But, um, yeah, New York has a power that that is is all its own. And it's the city that Mitchell, the protagonist of the new novel, chooses. It's it's a place he identifies himself with. And thus, everything bad that happens to New York, in some sense, he takes it as happening to his self. Does that make sense? I think he identifies with uh, New York in some ways, but it's it's scary to him as well. And and I think like like other characters in the novel, I think he feels like if he's going to really make it, he has to go to New York. You know, it's the old line about New York. And so, and yet he's he's frightened by I think the level of of cynicism that he encounters there. So you know, he works for this job where he's predicting worst case scenarios that actually terrify him. Mm-hmm. But the people he works with. Um, to only see it as another way to leverage profit, you know, to use it as a wedge to, to separate comp- corporations from their, their money. And, and that scares him, that kind of mm-hmm. high corporate cynicism. Um, and, and so, but yeah, part of his, his transformation in the novel is coming to terms with, with that and, mm-hmm. and trying to um, not get sucked into that kind of New York, uh, famous New York cynicism himself. The firm Future World that Mitchell goes to work for, gets recruited by, is I guess it's a little like a reinsurance company, but it's also a scam sort of. It's they they insure they give they give insurance companies someone to blame if something goes catastrophically wrong, but they themselves don't have to do anything. Future World doesn't, except for spend all their time researching disasters, just to say they did, right? Yeah, it's a little bit confusing, but yeah, no, it's essentially a uh, it's like, it's like it, it, um, using a kind of legal loophole to make money in the same way, you know, it's on the order of a credit derivative, you know, swap or something. It's it's a kind of high high finance uh, chicanery um, that they've figured out, and which I figured out is is completely possible. There's an opening for a future world today. I mean, after nine eleven, it became almost impossible to uh, buy catastrophe insurance because the insurance companies got screwed because they had to pay out so much money and. So there's this real gap in the market, um, and, and that's something that Future World tries to exploit. Mm. Why doesn't a Future World exist yet, do you think? Well, you need somebody to put into um, – you need a line in, this, in the to be passed by the mm. state senate. Mm. So that's sort of the one little extra um, – Thing I had to add to make it possible. <laughs> the law that lets them do that is in there in the reality of the book. And if it was, if it passed in reality, we would have some future worlds. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. This gets at another theme people talk about in the book, which is oh, the sense that New York is also the headquarters of everything that's gone wrong financially in the past ten years. So maybe if it got destroyed, that too would be swept away. You know, that's that's a, that's a current of thought you're familiar with, right? Yeah, there's a, the cleansing quality of a flood. <laughs> yes. um, yeah, you know, I try to. I, I I read all of the old, um, you know, the myth, the flood myths, which are variations on on uh, Noah and his ark. Although Noah is not, you know, the Bible. Many there are many examples that predate the Bible. Um, 
and that's part of the attraction of it is yeah wiping clean the earth of um all all of all of the all of the things that have gone wrong which start with a clean slate and that's absolutely a theme in the novel and when there that does happen um and Mitchell near the end of the novel is presented with a clean slate i think only then he realizes that well that causes a bunch of other problems too mm. each character in the book they they have a different attitude toward disasters and toward the possibility of disasters and they're scared by different things what what types of attitudes did uh, fascinated you before you started writing this book as far as those you have the mitchells of course but what other what other ways of thinking about disaster reacting to the prospect of disaster seemed fascinatingly foreign to you yeah, well, you have the Mitchells, and then you have the Elsa Bruners, who's this kind of uh, counterweight to Mitchell, who's a character who has a, a serious heart condition, which is a real heart condition called Brugada syndrome, where uh, you're totally fine, except any day your heart might just stop. And, uh, and, and she's a character, like a lot of people I know, who maybe don't have the Brugada syndrome, but are you know, fully aw- educated people who are fully aware of all of the horrible things that could go wrong at any time or that are going wrong. Um, and yet are filled with a kind of blithe optimism, um, and do to things like start a cooperative farm in Maine as Elsa does, you know, like we sort of know people like this, right. And, and, um, they go to the mountain school or, you know, and, um, they, and, and there's something, there's a kind of idealism that, is also baffling to me, you know, that the idea that you can just sort of not worry about any, anything and, um, you know, plant your own garden. And there's something very attractive about that, but, but, but also problematic, you know? And so I think Mitchell is fascinated by this. He hopes he can learn something from Elsa. He hopes he can figure out how to, um, what her figure out her magic trick so that he can apply it in his own life and not be so panicked all the time. Of course, he his life is pretty good. He has a, is a high paying uh, corporate job. Um, all you know, all the money he needs, all the food he needs, etc. Um, and yet he's in panic all the time. Mm. Totally healthy, you know, but completely in a panic. And so he's mystified by Elsa. And those are those are sort of the two poles that both fascinate me. And I don't think I'm personally at either one of them, but I find both very attractive and different for different reasons. Do you see much of a meaningful difference between a nine 11 type disaster man inflicted approximately man inflicted and a Seattle leveling earthquake or New York flood, like in your book, both disasters, but what's, does it mean a lot to you that one, there was actually a guy flying the plane and the other one, no one did anything directly. Yeah. I think there's a special type of horror, at a, uh, a human being inflicted disaster that I think we felt again with Boston massacre, that we've done this to ourselves in some way, you know, that this is as, as much as there's an effort to paint the um, terrorist as some foreign outsider always, right. It's always a foreign outsider, usually someone with dark skin. The first reports of Boston massacre, the dark skinned Arab, you know, running around Boston. Um, but really, I think what's truly horrific about these acts is that it's that we did it. You know, we did it to ourselves. And I think that element, I mean, I wouldn't put too fine a point on it, but there, that element is also present in discussions about climate change. Like, we're doing this to ourselves. And there's something truly horrific about that. Mm. And, and you know, we're, we're, we're messing with the chemistry, you know, of the planet, the biology. And 
we don't know what the you know what what kind of Frankenstein that we're going to create. We don't really know what what'll happen. And there's something there's an extra level of horror wrapped up in that, which I think is why people are also very eager to dismiss um, the you know whenever there's a Sandy people you know there's there's this dialogue about well is it because of climate change that there, that Sandy occurred? And I think there's a real knee jerk response to say of course not of course not there's always hurricanes and i think that reflects the i think the horror we feel that that we might be inflicting this on on ourselves does it make it psychologically worse or better that with 9-11 you know any of us any one of us could theoretically fly a plane into new york but no one of us makes climate change happen and no one of us stops it i mean one of us could decide not to fly a plane into New York, New York, and we've done our part there, but you can't, you can't cause or not cause a climate change related disaster yourself. So is that, is that good? Is that bad? I don't know. Uh, well, I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, I think it, that gets into a lot of the attitudes. I mean, I think how you answer that question in some ways, yeah, determines what your attitude is about, um, yeah, climate change. Like, you know, do you, do you buy a, you know, if you can afford it, do you buy an electric car? Do you, are you sort of anal about recycling, you know, and, but, but, you know, that position has flaws too, because of course, yeah, you could, you could not use any, you could live off the grid for the rest of your life and you'll have almost zero, if not, you know, point zero, 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 uh, effect on what's happening to the planet. And so, um, yeah, this is a question. This is, this gets back to this question of, you know, do we, how do we respond to this sort of, this looming, slow relatively slow developing crisis or series of crises or, or, or system of crises um and i don't know that there is an answer i mean that's that's what i wanted to write about is is yeah well what's the what's the responsible approach mm. you know do we just sort of worry about our family and make sure that we make you know do you just get a job at the coal as uh, a coal ceo to make sure that your kids can eat and your your family will uh, have money for generations, you know, or do you become an activist and stand in the road blocking, um, mm -hmm. you know, the coal trucks from entering the plant? Um, and I don't know that there's, you know, a right answer to that necessarily. Mm -hmm. And, but everyone has to make that decision for oneself. Um, or do you just pretend the whole thing's not happening? But I don't know if that's an intellectually honest answer either, you know, so there's, it's very thorny and I don't, and I don't feel like, one of the reasons I wanted to write this novel is because I don't feel like novelists are talking about this, mm. these issues. I think nonfiction writers are doing a very artful job of talking about them. Um, there have been a lot of books that have addressed these things in a very subtle way, not, you know, not polemical books, but, you know, hist histories and, and other types of speculative nonfiction, I guess would be the best term, have, have, have done a nice, interesting job with these questions. But I don't feel like novelists are going there, and I think they will. Mm. I think it's inevitable, but... Uh, I don't feel like it's happened yet, and I, I wanted to, to go in that direction. Why do you think novelists have dragged their feet on it? I think there's a it, – well, it's strange. I mean, because we've had – you know, there's a great literature, for instance. Uh, there's a great Cold War literature. You know, there's a great World War II literature, uh, you know. Um, and I'm not just talking about books about war or about um, – you know, the hunt for red October, I'm talking about something like white noise, you know, novels that address allegorically or metaphorically these sort of deep seated anxieties in the culture. And, and I don't think that's been happening with where, where we've been in the last 10, you know, five, 10 years and, and where we're going, um, especially around questions, um, 
of climate change. I think part of it is, is there's an anxiety. I think writers have been told their whole life that they're, um, you know, they, they are writers and they're not scientists. And so, and you should write about what you know and, and that whole line. And I think it's, that might be part of it. There's, I think writers can be intimidated to write about, um, money, to write about science, to write about technology, even though there's this great history of, you know, it's like who wrote about money better than Dickens, for instance. Um, and, or, you know, Proust writing about politics and, and, and Norman Mailer and, you know, coming up to DeLillo and, you know, and Bellow and all those people. So, but I don't, I just don't, yes, the question is why aren't people doing this? I don't really know. I think it might be the MFA system is, that is, that, that teaches a certain model. It's hard to generalize about that because there are plenty of writers that do interesting things that come out of MFA programs. But I mean, that might be one, the M MFA um, influence could be part of it on American uh, contemporary fiction. Uh, it could be a kind of um, anxiety about writing about these issues. I don't really know because it's really, frankly, it's not that hard to learn enough. You know, you don't have to become a scientist, you know, an expert in, um, you know, environmental science to write about these things. You just have to do a little research in the same way that you have to do a little research if you want to write about a, a, a story about a baker or, a, you know, a, um, a, a peddler or something, you know. Uh, someone who works in a magazine at a magazine rack and on the street, like you don't have to do those jobs in order to write about them. And I think mm -hmm. the the level of technical knowledge that you have to have to write about some of these other issues is actually not as great as, as you might think. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not an ex, I'm not, I never took economics in college, you know, I never took math classes in college, but you can figure it out. And I feel like especially now when we're at a point where, you know, technology, for instance, especially, is become so central to our culture. I think I wouldn't go so far as to say writers have to be writing about these things, but I think there's a huge, um, huge sort of swath of, of culture that is not being addressed in fiction. And I mm -hmm. think for the, my hope is that for the vitality of contemporary fiction, that novelists go there. Mm -hmm. and I think they will, and they have in the past. Um, but, but I haven't seen it happening. Um, now I don't see it happening now, and I, but I think I think it's a, it's only a matter of time. But yeah, my hope is that more novels take on these these ideas. I remember reading. I'm, I'm pretty sure this was by you. A review of the latest Tom Wolfe novel, uh -huh. and Tom Wolfe seems to be the last for now of that breed of super established, super researchy novelist. Right? I mean, it's been a there's been a big gap since him. I guess is it? Do do you think that's true? Yeah, and I think there's also, you know, it's the question of the quality of the research. I mean, I don't, I think the problem with the new Tom Wolfe novel is that he doesn't, he did the, re, he did a lot of research. There's no doubting, you know, he spoke to a lot of people um, and he experienced a lot of things, but it doesn't come, come off as mm -hmm. authentic because I think there's some, you know, he's writing about characters that, in part because they're, you know, they're 50 or 60 years younger than him, there's certain cultural differences that he doesn't quite, he didn't quite get. So I guess you could say there's actually a failure of reporting there. Maybe research isn't enough, or don't don't believe to yourself that research is enough. Right. Oh, no, it's definitely not enough. And you have to do something imaginative with it to make it real. And I didn't feel like that novel um, achieved that very well. But, I, you know, I think some of his earlier novels did to a greater extent. But, yeah, you know, someone like DeLillo writes about these things really well. Um, even, you know, a T.C. Boyle, um, he wrote, he's written a lot of great novels about big ideas that are extremely entertaining, so people don't really think of them that way. Um, of course, you know, Joan Didion. Um, and, yeah, there are a lot of people of that generation who are more 
you know, politically involved and politically in the broadest sense of the world word. And, um, and I just, I, I don't see that happening as much now. I mean, just a little, just, you know, you see it here and there, but, um, there aren't, I, it's just not in vogue anymore. Sort of engaging with big ideas. I think that you don't see that in fiction. And, and I don't think the way to do it is to make it polemic, you know, or to, to make it, um, preachy. You know, I think anything that can be expressed in an essay is better expressed in an essay than in a novel. But I think to get at these larger, more ambiguous, complex questions, um, what the, the novel has a very important thing that it can contribute that, that an essay cannot contribute, which is that it can make it in, in, intensely um, personal. It can take these larger, more abstract ideas and refract it through uh, a person's life, a character's life. And, mm. um, and, and that's the power of great fiction, right? I mean, it, it can... Uh, it makes these sort of the, 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 the public private. And, and I think there's a real demand for that now. Uh, I haven't, you know, as a reader, that's what I, those are, I want to, to, to feel that novelists are grappling with these big themes. And I think nonfiction writers are there, but I think there's real opportunity for, for novelists to do this. What do you find it important to do then to, I suppose, realify a Mitchell or an Elsa who, who hold, they're on the ends of the spectrum, as you said, in terms of how they think about disasters, how they regard all this evidence that you processed yourself. How do you, how do you take them, take the ends of the spectrum and then make them real people? Yeah, well, I, not every single step of the process, but generally. Yeah, I mean, I think I think Mitchell starts off at one extreme, but then there's this, there's a huge transformation and a fairly gradual transformation that that takes place. And yeah, it doesn't work if the characters are just two dimensional representations of of ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, it becomes um, you know diagrammatic and it's kind of boring. Mm-hmm. Um, but the characters have to be flesh and blood characters who are full of contradictions and conflicting impulses. And I think Mitchell is that way. Um, and Elsa's is more abstracted, but she plays a less central role in, in the novel. And she ultimately, you realize that she is also more complex than she, she might seem at the beginning of the novel. Um, so yeah, the trick, it's the old, you know, it's just, it, it it's the same that it's what's true of all good, good writing is that it, good novels, the characters are vivid um, human, um, full of conflicting emotions and ideas, and um, and and hopefully a reader can see himself or herself reflected in the character in some way. Mm. And I think great fiction does that. And um, and yeah, the danger in writing about these these things is is getting too caught up in um, or, or or is entering the realm of of sort of polemics or a kind of. Uh, geometric representation of these issues instead of bringing it to life. You have to make it intimate and personal. And, and so that's what I tried to do in the novel. And the element of the, of the comic as well, would you, would you say you include jokes in your book or, I mean, there's things, there's things that readers laugh at a lot in your books. Are there jokes in your books? There's a few, there are a few jokes, but it's more, I, I think it's, and I hope that there's, I hope that there's a lot of humor and I, you know, I, I see it as a kind of, um, I see. There's. I feel like horror and, and comedy are, are two sides of the same coin, and they work in very similar ways. And that sort of in great horror, like in great comedy, you are shocked by something happening, but the shock contains within it a revelation, and you 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 
glimpse through the, through the shock, some element of truth and something that, um, you know, some emotional truth, right? And, and you can either laugh at that, that that surprise can either cause you to laugh or it can horrify you depending on which way it's played. And so my hope in the novel is that it, it, that it kind of traces that, that fine sort of razor's edge between those two. Um, and so that, you know, maybe some readers might read something as horrific and other others read it as comical. And I think that's true of a lot of the sort of obsessive, crazy, worst case scenarios in the book is that they're all real. So there's something horrific about them, but they also can be played for comedy. Mm. And I think you have to acknowledge that they're both are, are, are elements that, that are, are part of obsession. You know, obsession contains both. Well, I mean, disasters are so much about the improbable and both horror and comedy are also about the improbable, aren't they? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. It's mm. about surprise, mm. surprise with a, an emotional punch. Mm. You mentioned different readers seeing different elements of this book, different ways they laugh or, or they're horrified. Is there, is there a sense that you, you want them to maybe feel both at once if they can in one individual? I mean, do you think that's how, how possible do you think it is to, for someone to laugh and be horrified by the same thing at the same time in the same book? I think it's possible. I think in some cases it's possible, but I, you know, I had, I did a reading recently where a woman came up to me, I read the opening chapter and, and said, you know, I really liked your book, but I was a little bit, I was made uneasy by the reading because people were laughing throughout the, the chapter. Wow. And I read it as just like a horrific and a thriller, you know, like a, a kind of dramatic thriller. And I love that response because I think if it's really working, it can go either way. And that's, mm. um, and the react, you know, which way it goes really depends on the reader. And that's what's great about fiction is that every reader brings, you know, themselves to the task and that, and, 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 has their own response, and and um, that's one of the exciting things about about you know reading fiction and also about writing fiction to see the different responses that something can can evoke. Some of the responses that the new book uh, Odds Against Tomorrow has <coughs> has evoked have referenced Candide. Uh, they've got another book about a disaster or with a disaster <laughs> in it, and they 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 call they call Mitchell a, a reverse Pangloss. Every, everything is the worst of all possible worlds, or he sees the worst of all possible worlds at all times. Do you see any resonances between the treatment of disaster and just of the bad things that can happen in life between Candide and your book? I mean, I'm not not to draw any lines tr- too directly, but is that is that a comparison that rings true to you at all? It's not something I thought about writing the book, but I think there is truth to that observation. And I think there's also some similarity in the ending of, of the novel and the ending of, of Candide. Um, but I don't think it's an exact one-to-one comparison. I mean, I think the novel it goes in, in – it ends with a, a little more ambiguity, um, I hope, or, or conflictedness. Um, although that's, that's there's an element of that in, in Candide as well, but um, – it's, I think it goes a little beyond that, I, I would hope. Um, but yeah, there's, there's, uh, I like the, uh, the uh, reverse Pangloss. I mean, I think that's sort of a nice way to think about Mitchell, at least as he appears at the very outset of the novel. Right. The Candide, I mean, you, you read that and there seems to be this sense of, you know, don't, don't wish for anything from institutions. Institutions are not going to save you. That's not where you're going to get your happiness. And, I wonder, in, in real life, you know, after Katrina in New Orleans, is that a lesson to draw from that 
debacle is that institutions don't necessarily know what to do. The state doesn't know what to do, despite the state did all this. You know, it's it's government research you were delving into to to learn about disasters. But then it seems like with that with Katrina, they didn't they didn't really know what was going on. That's certainly the lesson that's drawn by New Orleanians. There's mm. a complete distrust of of the government and if anything, suspicion of conspiracy. Mm. Um, that was present from the first days after Katrina, um, of course. And, uh, yeah, but, uh, the, you know, in the army Corps of engineers, you know, in, in new Orleans, the army Corps of engineers are vilified, um, because Katrina is not seen as a natural disaster. It's seen as a man-made disaster. You know, that's the line that any New Orleanian will tell you. It's not a natural disaster. It's a man-made disaster. And the men who made it were, in large part, the Army Corps of Engineers who built levees that uh, weren't sufficient and created more subsidence of the of the soil and led to the flooding that that you saw in, uh, after the storm. Um, so yeah, I think and I think there's that's something that's that's the national mood right now uh, mm. for, for a lot of at least a lot of the nation. Uh, huge distrust of of authority and of of government. Um, and yeah, but at the same time, they know they knew what was going to happen in Sandy. They, you know, they I think they probably knew what was going to happen when Katrina hit. Um, and so, yeah, they have the knowledge, but there's uh, yeah, ab- absolute suspicion, border, and hostility mm. towards them. And it seems like there's there are an, an infinitude of, of ways to react to disasters and to prepare your mind for disasters. After reading your book, none, no one jumps out as the sensible one, right? I mean, there's, there's not like, oh, this is how I should be about disasters. I don't know how you feel, but it seems like everybody's going to be a different way about disasters. And, you know, Mitchell, Mitchell can't point you in the right way necessarily. Yeah, I mean, it's it, disaster, you know, real catastrophe. I mean, I think there's a line in the book, you know, real catastrophe is a kind of genius. It's something that it's, it's a, it's a reconfiguration of the world in a, in a, in a way that's never, that you've never seen before, you know? And so in, in a, it's chaos. It's, it's sort of a vector of chaos introduced in, into your life. And, mm. and so it's a, there's something deeply irrational about a catastrophe. Mm. And so, so yeah, the question is, well, what's the rational way to, to respond? There is no rational way because you're dealing with something irrational. I mean, I'm reminded of one thing I learned writing the book, research, doing some research for the book is that, uh, most a common psychological response for people who are in um, who, who are experiencing catastrophes, like for instance, people sitting on a boat that's sinking, mm. um, sitting on the Titanic, or uh, someone who's skydives and the and the um, parachute doesn't work. Oh, jeez! You know, and the, uh, they've found that a shockingly high number of people in that situation um, don't do what we would say retrospectively is the reasonable, the rational, make the rational decision, which, you know, if they're on a boat, maybe run towards the lifeboat, right. uh, put on your PFD, um, run towards the exit or in a skydiving, uh, activate the, uh, the, the safety parachute. Mm. A lot of people who die, a shockingly high percentage of people who die from skydiving accidents never try to open the safety parachute. Mm. And so essentially what's happening is, the person in that situation is, is, is encountering something that they have no pattern recognition for. They've never seen anything like it before and they have no, so they don't know how to respond. And so they basically freeze. Mm. 
And you, you know, everyone would say, well, if I was in that situation, I'd pull the ripcord, you know, but people don't. Do we, do we have data on people who've been through disaster after disaster in life? Just people who go through a lot of disasters? Can they, are they better equipped for the next one? There are studies of those people. I've, yeah, really? I've read them. And, uh, uh, who are they? Man, they're, I mean, usually it's something freakish. It's where it, you know, in order to, to, to even experience catastrophe on that level more than once is, is obviously unusual. Um, but, yeah, they're usually there are they have some capability. You know, they're able to have the presence of mind to pull the cord or to mm-hmm. to run out uh, towards the the boat, and and that in part is how we know about the people who didn't make it. Like, I mean, there there I read one account of a guy who um, was in that situation where his like uh, cruise ship was sinking. And he instantly thought, well, I'm going to go up, you know, he, he figured out exactly how to leave the boat, right. the safest way, you know, he figured it out very logically in the moment. And he tried to get other people to come. And some people did, but a lot of people just said, oh, it'll be fine. Uh-huh. You know, things will get, and, and. This will unsink. Yeah, this, this, you know, this is probably normal. They'll fix it. You know, someone will fix it. Uh, we'll be fine. And some people just don't have that, that capacity. Um, so it is a certain sensibility that you have to have to survive those situations. Um, and, and some people have it and some don't, but the, the, you know, the problem is you don't know if you have it or not until you're actually in the situation. Hmm. I remember reading in the book, Mitchell says once or thinks, yeah, the Jews are pretty good as far as envisioning disaster, but this Christians, man, look, look at the disasters they have. The the religious perspectives on disasters, religions all seem to have them, I mean, don't they? Or do, or am I wrong? Or or, or it's just, is it just Jews and Christians worrying a lot? Yeah, I think it's it's a very primitive. Um, it's part of who we are, mm-hmm. and, and I think it it comes from uh, the fact that earlier in history, in pre civilization, there was a catastrophe, actual a real catastrophe every day. You were attacked by a wild animal. You know, you were, you, uh, you're the, the other person in the cave tried to, um, take a rock to your head. Um, you're fighting over the girl, you know, so there, you know, we actually live in, I mean, part of the humor of obsessing about worst case scenarios is that we're at, at a time where we've never been safer in many ways. You know, it's like, I'd rather be living now than in, in you know, uh, plague, plague, plague years of Europe, you know, 14th century pre-medicine era, right? Um, the Black Plague is coming for you. So, uh, but I think we have built, in, you know, built into us, built into our DNA, a, a um, survival instinct, really. So I guess what we're talking about, but it's, maybe it's been muted because of a sense of safety that we've developed over the last centuries. Mm-hmm. And Mitchell envisions these world-sweeping disasters, you know, a virus that kills humanity or what have you. I was going to ask, why do we, why have we experienced so few world-sweeping disasters? But I guess the low probability tells you why. But then again, I mean, it seems like by now we must be due for something that is not contained, right? Uh, yeah, we're due. <laughs> oh, I, I mean, I mean, I, there haven't been, there's something, it's been like 30 40 years since they've like developed new antibiotics. I mean, I, it, it, there's, we're, we're reaching this point where, um, when we have some kind of antibiotic resistant, uh, super flu will be in real trouble. That's sort of the, that's one of the scarier mm-hmm. scenarios of the, of the worst case scenarios in the book. And yeah. And, and I guess the other, the other part of the question is like, yeah, you'd think we're due, but really are, um, 
our individual kind of historical timeline is really uh, small. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you know, things have been pretty good for the last 30 or 40 years. We've just had, um, you know, some terrorism and some wars and some, you know, pretty large natural disasters, but we haven't had a repeat of the 1918, you know, flu, for instance. Um, But 1918 wasn't that long ago, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, these things will come around again. Um, and if anything, with with uh, the way that we're sort of trans- we're transforming the ecology of the planet, some of these things will happen at an increasing rate. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, whether or not these things, you know, certain events happen in our lifetimes is another question. But they they will happen. Do any of them keep you up at night, personally? No, I, not a one. I would. I mean, the super volcano kept me up for a <laughs> while. I mean, I and I've developed like certain neuroses about you know I don't hold a cell phone next to my head. I don't go through airport security. Um, How do you get out of airport security? You get pat patted down. Oh, okay. Yeah, I opt out of the. There's um, only so much they can do to you patting down. Yeah, I mean they feel you up, and they are often very forceful out of anger that they're being forced to to, <laughs> to do this. Um, but it's that's my own sort of passive uh, civilian disobedience. Um, mm-hmm. But no, I don't panic about any of these things because it's ultimately it's abstract. It's out of mm-hmm. out of my control, and I have moments where I get freaked out about certain things, and I and I think maybe I shouldn't live near a coast, things like that. But I, not so much that I actually act on it. And I think that's how we most of us are: is that yeah. we have moments of obsession. But then mo- moments of a kind of ignorance is bliss attitude. Even I could if, buy cans of food, but screw it. Yeah, exactly. Well, living in New Orleans, I actually do have to buy water because the, we're constantly having boil water advisories because the, the plumbing is so bad. Um, but yeah, you know, especially living in a place like New Orleans where everyone's prepared for catastrophe all the time, it becomes kind of the baseline. Mm. I've been speaking here at Los Angeles Review of Books headquarters in Silver Lake with Nathaniel Rich, author of San Francisco Noir, author of The Mayor's Tongue, author of the new book, Odds Against Tomorrow. Nathaniel, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall, and you can find much more at lareviewofbooks.org. Thanks. Thanks.